Welcome to the Rising Sea Voices podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Here you will discover and learn from the new generation of coastal, estuarine, and ocean scientists and engineers. My name is Felicia Meta Schultz, and I am the Rising Sea Voices host. Today, I'm talking with another very talented woman about her research on ocean change past and present. But before starting the episode, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I live and work in Vancouver, Washington. This land has been cared for and called home by the Chinook Indian Nation, the Cowlitz Indian Tribe, and the Chinookan, Tainapam, and Klikitat peoples from time immemorial. In the 1800s, the Tainapam Indians were relocated to the Cowlitz Reservation, where the descendants still live today, while many of the present-day descendants of the Klikitat people are part of the Yakama Nation. The land where I live holds great historical, spiritual, and personal significance for its original stewards. However, there is still no federal acknowledgement of the Chinook as an Indian tribe, and the Cowlitz Indian tribe had to wait until 2000 to be officially recognized by the federal government. I recognize and continually support and advocate for the sovereignty of the native nations in this territory and beyond. Despite centuries of colonial theft and violence, this is still indigenous land. It will always be indigenous land. Indigenous people are not relics of the past, and their talents and knowledge are worth celebrating. I make this acknowledgement to remind us that no diversity, equity, inclusion, or justice work can be done without including the voices and wisdom of indigenous people, and black Americans whose ancestors were brought to this land as slaves and were instrumental in creating what we now call the United States of America. Today, my guest is Karina Fish. Karina is a marine biogeochemist and PhD candidate at UC Davis and the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. While she is typically based out of the Coastal and Marine Sciences Institute's Bodega Marine Laboratory, she is a current NOAA Sea Grant John Canos Fellow working on the Hill and the US Senate for 2022. Karina endeavors to address societal needs through her work, as such, the research objectives for her doctoral projects were co-generated with NOAA National Marine Sanctuary staff. One project illuminates the regional manifestation of marine heat waves and ocean acidification and their impact on important food species. In addition, she uses chemistry to unlock deep sea coral stories of past oceanography changes from both the organic and inorganic parts of their skeletons. As a Ford Foundation Fellow, she applies an environmental justice framework to marine and coastal issues and is passionate about democratizing knowledge through science communication. When not at sea or in the lab, she can be gardening or hiking with her husky, Cleo. So we have definitely an amazing woman with us today. Welcome, Karina. Thank you for joining us. And how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well today. How about yourself? Yeah, doing, doing great. And... As we do usually with our guests, um, you know, we share some of their stories, um, you know, what is some of their background and how they decided to study what they're studying today. So I'm curious if you could share with us a little about your story, why basically, you know, brought you to this field? Sure. My origin story starts in high school and I was very impressionable, just like most teenagers are. And I had two different teachers that from my public school that really made an awesome impact on me. One was my AP environmental science teacher who had us do a, a term project on anything we wanted to uh, as it related to the class. For my project, I am actually from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And 
I noticed growing up that the west side of Cambridge had a lot more green space than the east side of Cambridge. And so for my term project, I wanted to quantify that as much as possible. So I ended up using a map and turning into grayscale um, and seeing if I could back out some of the um, pixels as well in terms of the green space to gray space ratio and see if there was a transect across the city of Cambridge, which was pretty much um, elongated along the east-west axes. And I did find things that kind of confirmed my, my suspicion or my hunch, my hypothesis. And so that really led me to understanding that there are, you know, spatial differences in where people are, are located. And I didn't know at the time, but I was stumbling into a term, environmental justice, and that would really define my career path. The other teacher from my public high school was Mr. McGinnis, and he taught a marine science course. Uh, two days before a science, uh, sorry, a parent-teacher conference, he told uh, my mom that there was an application for a semester abroad school, and it was based on an island in the Caribbean. So I was able and fortunate and very lucky to, you know, be accepted, but also uh, go to the semester abroad school, which is an opportunity that's very you know, very few and far between in terms of folks being able to take advantage of, but also accessible to many um, individuals, especially at the high school level. So I was very grateful to my parents for being able to swing that financially, especially for me. Um, and there, I really fell in love with ocean science. And it also played a huge role in my career. In college, I learned the tool set of geochemistry. And so Together, I have a tool set of geochemistry, a love for marine science, and then I'm fueled by my passion to helping advance environmental justice. So you put it all together, and that is what I am currently saying is my career path. Awesome. And I guess, you know, it's great that across your, you know, your path, you came across these, you know, great people who've been supporting you, and you've been able to discover, like, how can you mix those different interests together? And then... Can you tell us a little more about what you've been studying then? Because you, so you left the East Coast to go to the West Coast, right? Yeah. So I went to the West Coast in 2016 for my PhD. And I was very, very fortunate to be able to work with a professor who really prioritized community engagement. And part of that community engagement meant that she had developed this rapport with some National Marine Sanctuary managers. And so with them, I was able to iterate on some of their scientific needs to develop my dissertation um, of science research objectives. So thankfully, throughout the past five and a half years, I've carved out a project on a couple different aspects of things relating to their needs, one of which is on deep sea corals. So in 2015, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary expanded and so managers there were actively managing an area they knew very little about. And so they were looking for some more context to place their management decisions. Corals are very unique in the sense that they are similar to trees and they have a history recorded in their skeletons about the environmental conditions they grew up in. So kind of like how trees have tree rings, you can look back through a cross section of deep sea coral skeleton, and you can see the type of chemistry that it also recorded in its skeleton at the time that it was growing. So that's one project that allows me to really look at 
the past biogeochemical signatures of the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which is off of um, the SF Bay area. Another project I have with going with them is on ocean acidification and marine heat waves. And so just like we have oxygen on land that we need to breathe, and we also feel the impacts of heat waves, these two, um, these two parameters also can impact the ocean too. And because it is a solution that can have um, change from acidic to uh, more basic, the change in pH can be impacted by the other two parameters too. So if you think about them all together, and we can see that when there's a higher temperature, the, the ocean suffocation may increase or decrease, and there are different values of the system um, altogether that really have a dynamic uh, change when you factor them all together. Great. So if I understood, so when you looked at deep sea corals um, and look at those rings, so that gives you an idea, I guess, um, you know, of what they eat, what was, what also how their diet changed, how the water chemistry changed. And can you tell us a little more about that? And also how old a coral can be? Because I was wondering when you look at those, those rings, how far back in time can you, can you go? Sure. So a lot of the corals that we see can live up to 400 years, and that is only for one particular species or genera, rather. Um, there are other corals, deep sea corals, that can grow to 1,000 or more years. So it depends on which genus or which family you're looking at. Um, the ones I focus on are part of the bamboo coral family. And so typically they can grow as old as 400 years. However, they really do need to be in an area that has very limited disturbances to the seafloor. So if there's anything like um, deep sea trawling or whatnot that can basically disturb them, they may not be able to grow to that age. And to your point about what else you can see in terms of what they can, um, what you can tell through the chemistry, you can definitely tell what they, they can eat. And so the base of the food web is plankton. And you can tell to a, a rough degree what type of, of the base of the food web was um, at the time they were feeding. And so while they feed on more of a particular organic matter or dead things that are raining down onto them, we call it marine snow, with a particular chemical analysis, you're able to go back to the base of the food web and tell if it's, um, a, say, one type of base of the food web or a different one. I see. And because, I guess, the plankton, plankton, the snow that is falling, if you have any changes, for example, I mean, due to ocean acidification, you can see the changes that happens, I guess, in those um, plankton, phytoplankton communities, right? So that was the hypothesis. We're not really seeing uh, such a clear-cut story as that. Um, we use something called stable isotopes to differentiate the different time periods that corals have lived through. And what we see are a, a change in the stable isotopes. We look at both nitrogen and carbon in particular. And while we see changes, it's really hard to isolate what the mechanism was for that change in the isotope because there are many controlling factors for each isotope. So while we can hypothesize why there may be a change in, say, the carbon isotope or the nitrogen isotope, Again, it's kind of hard to isolate those mechanisms. And so 
we generally have a story we could put along with it, but more than a story, you need other techniques further down the line, hopefully, to really isolate some of those mechanisms. Okay, makes sense. And we're looking at the whole, you know, system, what they're feeding off too. It could have been, I guess, coming from pretty far as well and got pushed by currents where they're basically growing. And so, and what I was curious, so you mentioned what they're feeding off. So what is really different about those corals, my guess, is because they're so deep, um, there is no light. So it's not like they have this uh, symbiotic relationships with algae, correct? Yes, correct. The ones that we look at are about sometimes as shallow as 100 meters, but they can be deep as 3,800 meters, which is, fun fact, the average depth of the ocean. And at these depths, like you said, there is no sunlight. And so they're not with their their plant friends, the algae that usually you see in the more tropical versions of the corals. And because of that, they're only feeding upon dead things that fall from the top of the, the water column. And the marine snow that falls onto them is going to be detritus matter and anything that's um, used to be living at the, sea, the surface of the ocean and floated down to them. Great. And just out of curiosity, I was wondering, like, when you, for those um, species of coral, like, how diverse is it down there? And why did you choose this uh, bamboo coral particularly to study? That's a great question. So... We were on a cruise in 2017 and using some remotely operated vehicles, we actually discovered a new a species down there. And so even though it wouldn't say necessarily be as diverse as say a, a tropical coral reef area, diversity in the deep sea is also still being illuminated at this point in time. And so even if it's not as, not as a high density as the coral reef uh, correlate, there are still very, very interesting uh, species down there that are being discovered at each dive we go down. And, and to ask um, about how you, you've been able to discover the species. So you said you use like some, you know, ROVs and I guess, um, so you've been on a couple of research vessels and can you tell us a little about your experience? Um, doing this kind of, you know, exploration? And then finally, I mean, who do you collect your samples to? Sure. Going to sea is one of my favorite things as a scientist. I love the teamwork and the camaraderie that it is and the lifestyle of going out to sea with some of your favorite scientists for a couple of days to a week's at time and getting to focus on just the science. Um, there's a crew that helps, obviously, run the ship. And then there's also, if you're doing remotely operated vehicle work, there are engineers who work on just the, the robots. There are support staff. So back on the mainland as well. So it's a really a team-based effort in terms of getting down to those depths. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting other folks who'd make these, these scientific endeavors possible. So it's kind of like almost going to the moon. You need a whole task force to really get get down there and have a successful mission since it's so expensive. Um, my favorite memory, I guess, is knowing that I normally don't get seasick on most vessels, but this one morning I was the most junior scientist. So I had the pleasure of the 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift as well as the 4 p.m. and 8 p.m. shift. And I wasn't feeling that well. I was being kind of queasy and I actually, you know, 
lost my my breakfast that morning. But as soon as I walked into a control van, which is a dark shipping container at the top of the vessel, um, on the screen was actually one one of the specimens I was looking for, a bamboo coral. And instantly all my queasiness kind of melted away and I just was mesmerized by the image on the screen. And so inside this dark shipping container, there's multiple large screens broadcasting live this footage from the deep sea. And so it's really magical to see all, all that those imagery on the screen in, in real time. And there's about, I'd say, at least 12 other people in the, the control van at a particular time. And so you're really just hearing some oohs and ahs over the, the uh, channel and, of what you're seeing in real time and other people who are like the pilot, the ROV, and the other folks who are helping out as well. So it's a lot, it's a magical experience getting to see peek beneath the surface of the ocean using these robots in real time. How does it work? So to, to take a sample, because I'd be, you know, if you don't have a lot of those corals down there and you know, you like, okay, for research and for good reasons, I'm going to take a, a piece of it. Um, how does that work? And also, is it a reason why maybe you, chose the bamboo coral because it's maybe easier to to collect? Definitely. So bamboo corals are a branching form of coral. And so it's sometimes easier to collect them. Uh, the main reason why I chose to work with bamboo corals is that we already knew that they grew in the um, California current system and through past work, including my, that of my advisor. And having access to previous samples is super important. So you don't want to harm, you want to harm as few species or as few animals as possible. So you're really trying to be very judicial about which ones you do end up harvesting. So the ones I, most of the ones that I harvested were actually already skeletons. And those are the ones that we thought were going to still have a nice story in their skeleton, but obviously we don't have to harm any animals. Um, for the live collections, they're very special. And the whole skeleton gets utilized by the museum portion, as well as a portion goes to us. Um, and for those, the, the, they have a really unique story to them because you have a current date or a current tie point to really understand the whole timeline of and the history of the corals. And the nice thing about it is if you, if you really focus on that one sp specimen that you were able to collect live, that one sacrificed animal really helps you know, give light to what a special area that is in the deep sea and it enables the managers to hopefully eventually push for some more um, regulations for that particular area to, for the rest of the animals down there to be protected. Um, so we try to limit it as much as we can. And bamboo corals, like I said, can tell up to a 400 year old story to really show how things have been changing down there. And uh, they're pretty cool in the sense that they have this alternating skeleton type from this chalk-like portion of their skeleton to a more horn-like portion or is akin to your fingernail, that type of material. And we usually use the organic portion. So that's the finger-like, fingernail-like portion of the skeleton. But the chalk-like portion of it can also be utilized. So you're really utilizing as much as you can of, of the skeleton. Um, the nice part is the chalk-like portion can tell you more about the water it sits in, so at 2,000 meters or 1,000 meters deep, whereas the fingernail portion of the coral can tell you more about the surface of the ocean and the surface conditions at the time that it was living. So it's a really unique coral in that sense that it's giving you this dual signature of both the surface of the ocean and the deep part of the ocean as well. 
rather than having to say, take two specimens that have different signatures to them. So in that case, the bamboo corals are definitely some of my favorites because it has that dual signature to them. Yeah, that that's amazing. And and based on some of the analysis you've been doing, is there something that really surprised you in what you discovered in either the the chocolate part of the coral? So this is more like, you know, the, the depth um, um, chemistry environment versus the one that represents more like the, the surface environment. Sure. Uh, so the deeper portion of the coral really shows pretty static environment down there. So that's uh, not as an interesting story to tell, but it's still good to know that the deep part of the ocean is pretty much unchanged in that aspect of the chemistry that we're looking at. For the organic portion from the, and that's telling the surface story, I was actually surprised to see as much, as much fluctuation and, and signature down there as I did. So even though you would think because it's 1,000 meters deep or 2,000 meters deep that you might find a more muted signature to those surface changes, you can actually still discern some of those fluctuations that are surface-derived in a bigger uh, change than you might think that you may be able to reach down there no normally. It's not as muted or dampened. Yeah, and and what I was curious too, because you're looking at you know surface changes and these based off you know this snow falling, you know in the deep sea, um, how long it takes for the snow to go down there, and and does it, is it giving you an accurate story of when those changes happened? So in terms of the actual marine snow making it down to those depths, it really depends on where you are in the ocean. For the California current system, it can be as short as a couple of days to as long as a week. So it's pretty quick. Um, we call it an export from the surface ocean down to the deep sea. If we're talking about how fast the robot can get down there, that can take anywhere between a few hours to several hours. And so sometimes we uh, joked that our shift between 4 a.m. and 8 a.m. was the valet, blue valet shift, because we were just transiting from the surface of the ocean down to the deep part. So then the next shift could actually do some exploration of the seafloor. So it really depends on how, what depth you're going to, but it can definitely range in that time frame between uh, a couple hours to a couple more or a few more hours. And then in terms of the accuracy of the story that you're seeing through the chemistry of the corals and that being a uh, accurate representation of what happened in the ocean, we call these uh, these chemical analyses proxies or um something that gives us a good idea of my, what's happened back then, but it's not going to be spot on. So there's a lot of wiggle room, whether that's the chronology or the timeline of established for that particular coral. Again, since many of the corals that we ended up uh, analyzing were already dead when we found them, we really have to constrain the, the dates or of when it was growing through some other chemical analyses. So there's a lot of wiggle room. I call it more of an art sometimes than a science in that regard, since you are um, putting together a chronology for this, this coral based off of maybe only two tie points, or maybe at best three if you collected that coral while it was living. And so because of that, you have some wiggle room in the timeline portion of it, but you also, again, have some wiggle room in the actual analyses themselves as well. Again, going back to that idea that a lot of the 
chemical signatures that we're looking at, the, the fingerprints could be um, impacted through different processes, whether that's going to be, say, the temperature, but also, say, you know, other impacts too. And all those things are coming together. So the food availability, the f- speed at which the food's being delivered to the coral, all these things can complicate the that clear-cut story. And so we call it a story in that particular regard since it's telling us narrative rather than a clear-cut yes or no answer to most of the questions or hypotheses that we're asking. That's, yeah, amazing how complex it is. And and that makes me think, brings me to the question of, so that I can see that as one of your challenge, one of the challenge for your research, but any other sp- specific challenge um, in your research, like, if I can say that, is like anything in the course of your research in that field or any, I don't know, research you've been also doing in the past or now, anything that has been, you know, particularly unexpected or challenging? Sure. I go back to the idea of how collaborative this type of science is, just inherently due to the depth at which we're operating. Um, You need a ship and vessels are very cheap to run because you need the fuel and you need the crew and then you also need you know supplies on board for however many days you're at sea you need the scientific expertise and you try to make sure folks run the gamut so that at sea in real time you can make a decision rather than having to always phone somebody back on land who may be asleep at 4 a.m um and because of all of this i I think the main challenge is, say, either the funding for deep sea exploration, but also the the coordination it takes from so many different entities. So for the one that I was on most recently, we have the private sector, we have the public sector, and then we also had me as an academic from you know a public institution, plus many others. And so it was really a, a concerted effort to get to see it and spend you know eight days on the water doing a targeted type of uh, analysis and make sure everything also gets back to the lab so you can actually run your samples once they're back in la- at the at the university. So there are a lot of moving parts, but it's a whole team effort that really makes sure that things go off without a hitch. Yeah, and when you go on those cruises, so how many people are on those vessels and for how long are you at sea? Uh, the shortest trip I've been on was a day trip, and the longest one I've been on was five weeks. And again, it really depends on what type of operations you're trying to conduct out at sea. So the ones that were on a smaller ship, that was, I would say, eight of us. And during the pandemic, it got down to even fewer because they went down to just a skeleton crew. But the objectives of that cruise was very narrow, it was even smaller objectives than, say, a more complex five-week-long cruise. So for the larger cruises, you have, again, not only the science party, but you also have the crew. And the crew is typically uh, divided into officers and engineers, and there may be even more than I'm, I'm blanking on at the moment. So it's almost like a small operating city floating at, at sea. And because of the different, you want to be maximizing your time out there. So you're working around the clock. And because of that, there are usually triplicates of everything. So one person has one third of the day and one person has one third of the day slash night. And one other person has one third of the night. And so it really divides into these um, 
different crews and you may not see, you know, one third of the crew for extended period of time because it's their turn to sleep finally. Um, so it's really cool to be at sea and uh, it definitely depends on what your objectives are and that it can range from as few as eight to maybe as many as, you know, almost a hundred. Wow. Indeed. That's a, can be a lot of people there. And I know some of those uh, research vessels, they also broadcast live uh, some of the deep sea exploration. And I was wondering if you've been involved in something like that and if you've been working, um, I don't know, with schools and try to explain it on more what you're doing. Yeah. So definitely for the exploration cruises that I've been on, they have a whole dedicated science uh, communication party that is just devoted to making sure those connections back to um, land can actually advertise what they're what they're doing at, at the deep sea in real time. And so they have things that are broadcast live in terms of a live stream of the deep sea, but they also have science communication leads who are doing interviews live on on the board with other folks of the science party or the crew to illuminate the other roles that really make this whole production go uh, go off without a hitch. So yeah, there are definitely different aspects that are being run. I was able to do one, they call it a ship to shore broadcast with one science communication fellow. And I, that was just one of many broadcasts that they were doing around the clock. So they are definitely hard at work making sure that folks on land can really tune in and feel like they're at sea with us. Great. And I've been able to, in the past, to look at some videos. I think it was through the RV Notitis. So I, yeah, that's always amazing to see what is, you know, going down there. And something I was wondering, you mentioned that you're passionate about environmental justice. And how do you use the research you've been doing uh, or and how do you link that to environmental justice? That is a great question. And I pondered it for a very long time. How could the tool set and skill set that I have really kind of, how can I lend that and be of, of assistance to folks who may have environmental justice issue that they want, you know, my expertise for, or how can I be of most helpful for any particular community and effort. So I was thankfully connected to a community group called Green Action through a collaborator of mine at University of California, Davis. And throughout this past year, I've been able to work with them in developing a sampling plan to use the same tool set of using geochemistry to analyze some soils and some water that may be contaminated with some, is adjacent to Superfund site. And so their concern with sea level rise, really remobilizing and resuspending and reactivating some of these contaminants that are either heavy metals or radioactive nucleides and suspending it into the water column, or maybe it's being swept out to sea. It's, it's based next to an estuary. So with, with this tool set, of how to you know write grants and to devise a sampling plan and to execute the sampling plan and then to analyze these soil and water samples for different chemical uh, parameters. I was able to lend this tool set to this community group and eventually what they're hoping is to write a report to push for more you know 
cleanup of this area such that the community that's nearby that's facing some adverse health impacts um, can really be helped in this way. And so it was only through, you know, having somebody else who already had built that community relation, that those community that rapport with the community group that they trusted this this researcher that she brought me on and I was able to bring on two other folks as well. And with that, I was just we were just listening to what their needs were. And it's really cool because I'm learning so much about how you can organize a community and how there you can really advocate for a group and seeing who the players are. So I'm learning just as much as I am able to also offer. And so it's really a two-way street that I'm super proud of um, being a part at this point. Yeah, no, it sounds like amazing work. And you've been able to to basically kind of bridge the gap between, um, you know, science and kind of like academia, like we talk the Avery Tower and community needs. And so I think that's that's great. And at the same time, you know, creating a tool set I'm sure can be used in other communities as well. So hopefully would be useful to others. And and that brings me also to the question because now you're a Kano's fellow, correct? And and you're going to explore another, let's say, um, field that is more like the, the field of policy. And I was wondering how do you feel about this and also how you're gonna to try to maybe bring in um, some environmental justice lens to, to your future work. I am really thrilled to be a Canals Fellow this year. I am working partly on a portfolio that is very environmental justice focused and doing so I'm learning so much. This is only my second week that I just finished and I'm learning so much. I feel like I'm learning through a, drinking through a fire hose at this point about how the, the legislative process works. And I think it's important for later on in my career knowing this this process so that when I do partner with a community group again, I'm able to say, hey, if we wanted to you know, advocate for your needs at a legislative level, this is probably you know, a way I would suggest doing it. Or say they already know the legislative process, I could say I can volunteer to you know, execute this portion of their advocacy needs. So that's how I see this experience really dovetailing nicely into my career goal of advancing environmental justice. And where have you been placed for your fellowship? I am in the legislative branch and I'm working in the Senate. Mm, nice. And I think the Kenos Fellowship, it's it's about a year, right? Yes, it is a year long. Okay, it is a year. Just wanted to double check. And I know it's a question that personally, I, I don't really like too much when people ask me this question, but like... What would you like to do next? Um, would you like to go back to academia? Would you like to do more like a, you know, work for the federal government? Any idea? Or so far, you you see based of you know opportunities that basically will show up. That's a great question. I'm trying to keep an open mind for this next year. That's what I'm thinking the whole point of this fellowship is, and to really broaden my horizons after I'm drinking the academic Kool-Aid for so long. Um, I do have a, a role model in the academic space that I really would like to emulate, um, Dr. Hadia Sewer, who is a researcher at Stanford. She's done this amazing job of really 
funneling university resources back into her community in the Virgin Islands. And I want to do that in so many different ways of, you know, taking whether it's grant money and making sure that the projects of the folks who need or have a project they would like to community project they would like to get off the ground and making sure that can happen or say that's inviting community organizers to lecture and to compensate them and you know it, it lessens your teaching load but it also exposes um, the students to ways that they can really use their academic tool set to advance these community objectives um, it's just a brilliant w- way of really you know, bridging that ivory tower with um, the community around them or, you know, where they're from. So I really admire the way she's done that. And I'm sure I'm completely butchering how actually (laughs) she does it with such finesse too. So I have a lot to learn in that regard. So I can see myself going back to the academic space in that way. If I were to have a really community, uh, community led program, research program, wherever I end up, and if I stay in policy, I can see myself hopefully staying as a staffer on the Hill for a couple of years. So just trying to keep my doors open at this point, because I know there's so much I don't know, and I would love to learn so much more. Oh, that sounds great. And I think, you know, we we'll, we continue to learn, you know, forever. So, and you never know what opportunities will, you know, will present them in, you know, to their do- to your door. And I'm sure you'll have plenty. <laughs> and if you continue this, you know, go, go back to academia or back in the government job, is it, would you like to stay in the same like field or are you curious in maybe exploring some other kind of research? Like, you know, do we, would you like to stay in biogeochemistry or are you interested in exploring something else? That's a great question. I think I would still always have biogeochemistry as a tool set in my tool belt ready to go at any time. But again, like I said, I love learning. I really got it into the social sciences over this past two years. And I hope to be a scholar in that sense as well and learn from many who have done, whether it's uh um, field of the Black Studies or feminism. I think there are so many ways that the hard sciences can really learn so much more from the social sciences and really have a blending of the two. And so I'm really excited to hopefully um, pivot a little bit into social sciences and help, you know, imbue a lot of the ways that I, I approach my chemical research with ideas that stem from the social sciences. I can only say that I approve because it's kind of like the path I followed in a way. Um, and yeah, I think also it's great, but if you can find a way to to weave these um, because it makes your science stronger. Um, yeah, so I totally support that. <laughs> and is there, because, you know, you, I feel like there is still so much you're going I mean, to do you just at the beginning of your career. Um, do you have a specific vision of the future you would like to see or um, some areas that, you know, in your field or in general that you would like to see being, you know, improved or changed? Yeah, I think my vision going forward is a world where 
justice is imbued in every aspect of life. And so for me, that's going to be in the ocean. So I am focusing on ocean justice and how that can be in many different forms and shapes, whether that's the people doing the work, the people impacted by the work, the people leading the work, um, just so many different ways you can really look at the ocean sciences or ocean feel in general. It doesn't have to be the science aspect of the ocean. There's so many different ways of looking at the ocean, um, whether that's ocean humanities or whatnot. And really looking critically at it through a justice lens, I think is something where I'm looking to step into that space fully, even more so in the future. That sounds awesome. And um, and I'm going to leave you basically uh, and give you a chance to, I don't know, if you want to share, you know, something to add to our chat or something you would like to recommend to audience to, you know, check out if it's either, you know, some resources. Uh, by the way, you have an awesome website. So uh, I recommend the audience to after check the SPN website and looking at Rising Sea Voices page because there you will be able to see um, links about, um, you know, that Karina will share with me and her website with a bunch of information about all the awesome things she's been doing so far. So, um, yeah, anything would, you would like to share with us? Uh, thanks for the opportunity for coming on this podcast today. I have loved it, even while it's been a little bit awkward sometimes for me, so I apologize. I would like to plug the local efforts at every level. And so for me, I'm more intimately involved with the University of California system and how there are community engagement offices and uh, depart not departments per se, but um, working groups that have really been successful at I think a lot of folks who feel more transient can plug into. So I'm, I'm early career, I'm finishing up my degree. And so a lot of times I'm getting questions from other students and asking, how can I, you know, get involved with community engagement if I'm temporarily here and I'm going to be moving, you know, in a couple of years. And I think the answer to that is definitely plug into an existing infrastructure. So whether that's at uh, the community engagement arm of the university or anything else, um, there's definitely ways to explore the community engagement portion without having to recreate the wheel. So I definitely want to plug that. I, I agree. And I will just put at the same time a little plug for Seagrant. You know, check out also what your Seagrant office is doing because it uh, can involve also some community engagement work. And um, yeah, and I'll definitely also share the link to um, Green Action, uh, with whom you've been working on those tool sets. Um, so I can share that to our audience. But yeah, thank you so much, Karina. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, to learn so much about your research, which is not an easy field and pretty challenging to to get those corals and after to do all these analysis. And I like how you've been able to to bridge um, those different, basically, sphere. Like if we talk about, you know, uh, science, society, and now policy. So that's awesome. And I wish um, that, yeah, you'd inspire more of us to, to try to go this route and not to be um, worried, I mean, or, or scared of trying something new and go outside of your comfort zone. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as well.